someone asked me the other day what my objective with the podcast is and I said to get to 50 episodes and still be enjoying doing it and I think I'm going to do that I'm I'm loving it it's just so much fun the variety of people I've had the chance to speak to and hopefully coming up the way that different episodes are going to are going to come together is really really exciting and with the Euros we can do some more kind of in-depth game analysis and obviously talk about England squad getting ready for that. So really, really looking forward to it. Um, James Montague, thank you so much for your time. Real, real pleasure to speak to you about The Last Leg and some of your previous books. Um, hope everyone enjoys this conversation. There's some great stories in it and it was a real pleasure. James, I wanted to start with kind of what you touched on before, before we began, which was about travel restrictions. And you're someone yeah. who has traveled a lot and you know without coronavirus you'd probably be traveling a lot as well how have travel restrictions changed your life in the last year year and a bit well in a way I mean it's completely changed my life I mean for the past 10-15 years I've been traveling you know I mean pretty much all over the world writing stories about football but you know not about football it's always about the things that are around football as well so I mean the the travel that I was doing before I mean, I was living in Belgrade. I was, I just finished 1312 on the Ultras, which is my last book. And that had taken me, I mean, 2019 was just crazy. I mean, it was like Indonesia, uh, LA, Poland, um, Ukraine, you know, loads of crazy experiences along the way. And I mean, to be honest, after finishing the book, I was kind of exhausted. And then, then coronavirus happened and I'm, I was actually, my family got separated. I was in I was in um, in England on the east coast in Lowestoft with my daughter. And my partner was in Istanbul, which is where we were planning to live. And so we spent three months apart. And um, so on the one hand, I was extremely like I've not been in one place for this long since I think I was a teenager in terms of one country. And then, but then you know we managed to get the first flight out to Turkey in June. So I've been in Istanbul since then. So I've been in kind of like a new city. And so if I ask people back home you know, who haven't like left Chelmsford pretty much or where I'm from for the entire, for like 18 months. It sounds like that kind of life is continuing. It's just, I haven't left my neighborhood in Istanbul. So I am kind of in the, I mean, you can probably hear the noises in the background. I'm in the back garden. Um, so yeah, in one way it's changed massively. because I have, you know, I have a, that, that kind of life is, it has stopped since the start of the pandemic. But on the other hand, you know, I'm, you know, I'm still in, I'm in a new city. And so, you know, it feels it, it has taken the edge off that kind of travel, um, that kind of wanderlust a little bit because it still feels like there's 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 something still to be discovered around here. Mm. There's a bit in your in your chapter in the away leg. There's a bit just where you're describing the airport when the teams are going to get on the plane, and I was just like, God, it's been so long since I've been anywhere yeah. near an airport. Like this is this is actually really helpful to like remind me about <laughs> like a previous time when you'd actually even consider going abroad. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been thinking about like what I'm going to do the next time I fly because it's you know I, I hated flying. I mean, I don't, I'm not scared of it, but it was just it was just it was one it was a way of getting from A to B. And I'm quite a tall guy, and you know I always fly the cheapest way, the cheapest seat. So I mean, it was hell taking a kind of 16 hour flight somewhere or having to make three changes. You know, I, I kind of write about it sometimes as if it's a kind of a bit of adventure, and sometimes it is, but it's never the the flight itself is awful. So I'm 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 almost excited about the prospect of going to like a really shitty airport somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure London Luton is waiting, ready ready for not you. that not that shitty. I'm not I, that shitty, I, right? I, 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 I mean, I reckon the two worst places, the two worst airports I've ever travelled through were Port-au-Prince in Haiti um, a few months after the earthquake. It was the most miserable place, um, the most saddest place, one of the saddest places I've ever been to. I've like, been just desperate to get out of this place that had been ruined by this huge natural disaster, but I would still put Luton Airport above that. It is, it is, it's what, it's, I imagine it's what, if you went and watched, um, do you remember the film Children of Men? Yeah. Which, like that dystopic, you know, and, and Luton Airport always reminds me about that. I think it's in Bexley Hill or Bexley Heath where they, they're kind of just basically, it's just like series of cages where they've locked people up and put hoods over their heads. It, Luton Airport looks like a dystopic future 
where they're kind of jailing people for various thought crimes. And that is the nicest thing I can say about Luton Airport. Blimey. Okay. Well, let's try and avoid you flying out of there then. Um, yeah. Do you miss Do you miss the UK? Do you miss like Chelmsford home, Essex? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, on on a on a very superficial level, I miss I miss Marmite and tea and um, you know Picky Lily and things like that. But yeah, I do miss home. And and it was nice. One of the things is that I've been pretty much constantly on the move. I mean, before here, I was living in Belgrade, and before then. Um, I've lived in uh, Budapest, Bucharest, um, Valencia, uh, Beirut, the UAE, and it's been, you know, there's, there's a couple of times I've been back in London, but having three months in Lowestoft, which is fairly my parents can live there now, but the, having three months there, it really, I don't know, just reminded, made me connect a bit more back with, with where I'm from. I mean, I'm obviously English. I mean, I'm you know, I have Polish family as well, but I mean, I was, I was born in England, grew up in England, so that's that's a huge part of my identity, and I've always felt that as I've travelled. But it was really important to to come back and spend three months, even even as the country was going through, through something kind of utterly unique. Um, so it wasn't a true reflection of it, but just being back in 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 the countryside by the sea. Um, you know, lower stuff gets a bit of a bad rap. I mean, I think people see if it as a place that's a bit down on heel. I mean, I've I've been reading the Rings of Saturn, which is this very high, uh, high literary kind of magical realist travel book almost of about a German author walking along that coastline. And um, you know, and he hasn't had many nice things to say about lower stuff as well. But he, the way he writes about the beauty of the scenery and and the people as well that that you could meet. And I thought, yeah, it was. I do miss home, and um, but also I, I kind of don't miss home as well. I kind of feel that whatever it is I've got in me that wants me to keep moving is is still there. So, I mean, I don't know if I'll ever even live back home. I mean, my partner's Dutch, my child is Dutch. I'll probably end up, you know, somewhere in Holland, I suppose. But <laughs> it's it's um, yeah, it's you you also start to think a lot when you're away. People seem to become more patriotic or more reminiscing about kind of where they're from and what, what they are. And, and especially over the past kind of five, six years where we've had Brexit and we've had a lot of things about the nature of, of the country and its relationship with the world has changed a lot. So, so there's a lot of, lot of things to be chewing over. And I'm, I'm just really, yeah, I'm kind of glad. I mean, I'm not glad the pandemic happened. I'm, I'm glad I had that time and spent that time, you know, with my family and, and, you know, around, around my people. Mm. I've heard you said before that you always saw yourself as more of a fan than a journalist. Presumably that's the case now more than ever with West Ham being so good this year. <laughs> yeah, well, um, yes. I mean, I've always seen myself as a fan, really. I mean, well, I was a fan first and, and mm. I mean, not, not an ultra, obviously, because we didn't really have ultras. And I wasn't a hooligan because I wasn't uh, hard enough or cool enough to be in that gang. And so, um, you know, I... I, but I've always been a fan and it's one of the reasons why I don't really, I don't really write about the Premier League. I don't really write. I mean, I do about the political stuff about the Premier League, but about the football in the Premier League, I don't really, I keep that to myself, but I still enjoy it. I still kind of love the Saturday kickoffs. I still, I still watch every game religiously and not having to write about it means that I can still, still kind of enjoy it in a certain way. And, you know, I don't, I've not made any, I know a lot of, journalists don't like to give their allegiances but I'm, I'm, I don't think there's any um, surprise I've mentioned it before I think it might even be in the front of one of my books um, <laughs> that I'm a West Ham fan and, and you know have been you know dad's from Plastos you know it's, it's, it's all my family on, on that side on my mum's side they're all leggy a Warsaw fan so well they I mean those that are still alive but um, yeah it, 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 it to be honest there's been a couple of things that really got me through the pandemic which were, you know, the fact that West Ham suddenly turned into a potential top four team. I, ha I was having a really good fantasy football season. I was doing loads of podcasts because 1312 came out. And then I got approached by Steve Mennery, who's a journalist I've really had a lot of respect for since he wrote Outcasts, a book about the unrecognised nations of, of, of world football, which, I, which was really influential for me when I was, a, when I was just starting out. And um, he approached me about writing a, or helping him edit a book about um, 
you know, like like me, he was missing traveling to away games. And so he wanted to bring together a collection of kind of writers to to write their stories about the, the, their most memorable trips, which ended up becoming the away leg, um, which we which we did. And, and we thought because of COVID, it should be a charity book and, and all the proceeds are going to, to carers charity um, to, to community integrated care because carers have been completely um you know exploited and undermined and and you know much undervalued uh, before covid and uh, especially during and after covid and you know I, I don't you know i mean it's not going to make millions i don't think but i mean if it can help in any way uh you know we were glad to do it and this 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 really helped me get through it as well kind of reminiscing on on old trips and helping other people reminisce on old trips as well Mm. I was going to ask you about that. Like, was it fun to write up a game that you saw live, effectively, like as a match report? Like, there's bits in your chapter where it's effectively like a play-by-play. -play. Um, yeah, I mean, the, somebody pointed out to me that I'm not really a football journalist because I never write about football, and so, and I I, I'm not very good at writing about football, to be honest. And I think there's loads of really good, like, you, know, you read a match report from Barney Rone and it can go any direction. You know, I, I really respect that. I don't think it's my forte. I've done a couple of them. I did a couple of match reports for the New York Times, I remember. Um, and I quite enjoyed it, but in, in a way that like it's uh, like you're, you're, you're just given a completely different job for the day. You know, somebody says, oh, can you be a postman for the day? And if, you, if, you, if you're a postman for a day, you'd really enjoy it. If you've done it for 20 years, getting, getting kind of you know, pissed on and dogs barking at you, you probably wouldn't like it. But for that one day, you'd really like it. And I felt like that a little bit. And yeah, it was. I mean, it helped because I mean, my chapter's about me going to North Korea to watch uh, Asian Cup qualifier with Lebanon. And, and so the, the entire situation was so bizarre and it was so unique. I mean, even for all the places that I've been to, I mean, I've probably reported from a hundred different countries and this is the, by far the strangest experience I've ever had. And, you know, made stranger by the fact that a couple of days in, there's a nuclear bomb tested, the hydrogen bomb tested in north of the country, and like all comms go down. I mean, there's no, there's not really many comms anyway. I mean, you're in the most isolated country in the world. But then, you know, you, you're with like, you're in your hotel, and then you, you manage to sneak out and get into the Lebanese team hotel. They don't know what's happening. They don't know if there's a bloody, there's a nuclear war about to happen. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was even writing a match report. It, it felt like I wasn't even really writing a match report. It's just like the weirdest match report you could ever write. Yeah, my, my, I mean, the match report. I think I think you're underselling yourself there. I think it's done really well. I think if you're if you're like a storyteller, then like the story of a game, particularly with the way the game ends, is like just exciting, I suppose. And like that contrasted with, I think the description is there, like walking off the pitch, and you said it's just like all of a sudden it's quiet and everyone's leaving. That must have been that must have been really interesting. To see, my favourite bits in there are the interactions you have with the players. Um, and is it Kim who says that his favourite player is Thomas Muller because Thomas Muller thinks? Like, I just thought that was great. Like the thing. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's someone... that's that's the reason that someone could have a favourite player. Yeah, he was the head of the the Pyongyang football school, and to, to be honest, that the my favourite part of it because it's very difficult in North Korea um, when you get in. Obviously, you you are controlled at every point. Like you have a you have a minder. I never mentioned. I think that the driver that we have. I had two very nice. Korean women who spoke English but even learning English in Korea means that you're, in North Korea means your family must be absolute kind of like regime loyalists so to get to that position so obviously they're there as as kind of you know they, they believe in the system and the guy who was the driver he couldn't drive so I just assumed that he was a spy who's there to keep an eye on them keep an eye on me so it's a really restrictive place you, 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 you the kind of interactions you get with people, obviously, if they're not staged, then they're very difficult because nobody wants to talk to you because talking to you is a crime. So, but going to the Pyongyang football school and meeting, and meeting the coach there, and, and I've often found this traveling around anywhere around the world, really, that even like when I lived in Lebanon briefly, like you'd meet the Hez Hezbollah has a football team, right? Alahed, and you'd go and if you try to walk around Dahir in the south, where which is Hezbollah country, you know, as a journalist, you'd, you'd get picked up pretty soon. But when he told people that you're you're a football writer, they just like they firstly they assume you're an idiot, and they'd be like, okay, it's harmless, so you can go. But you end up then speaking to people about things in, in you know, and speaking to 
you end up tackling the big topics that probably a non-football journalist would want to tackle anyway. But pe people kind of are kind of disarmed by football. They they want to talk about football. You want to talk about football as well. And so, so someone like him, when we started speaking, he was you know he it was brilliant. It was like it was it was a really natural interaction. You know, because once you I wasn't asking about like oh are you allowed to say that or you know it was it was genuine. He he loved Thomas Muller. He loved he loved <laughs> the way he thought about the game and. Um, you know, the, the, he was a deep thinking football man. And, and I love that, that you can find that person recognisable to anyone who loves football, that kind of coach, uh, that kind of figure uh, in the most isolated, repressive place on earth. And there are, of course, all sorts of other questions about the ethical nature of going there and, and what kind of things they've had to do to get to that position, what kind of you know, they obviously you obviously have to agree with everything that's happening, and and not just you, but your family before them, before them too. Because um, usually in North Korea, what happens is that if one person, you know, falls foul of the regime, that's a punishment that goes down the generations. Like their children, their grandchildren often punished for it as well. So, so it it was it was just this this riddle, and you know, meeting him and also the coach at the school I met, who was. Uh, trying to bring up the level of the boys because women's football is much better in North Korea than than men's football. Um, you know, it was it was joy, and you don't often see pictures of smiling faces in North Korea. But of course, you know, people are people, and they have loves and desires and passions like everywhere else, even in the most um, restrictive dictatorships. And that's something that I grew up with. Having you know, my mum escaped communist Poland in the late seventies and my family was still trapped there and lived through it, lived through um, martial law in the eighties, lived through the fall of communism in 89. You know, you know that people have this perception behind, behind these gray walls, that these are gray people and they're not, they're, they're just as passionate and colorful as, as, as anyone in, 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 in the free world as to, to say. And, you know, I found that there, you see these little, little glimpses that you just never see anywhere else, even, even in such a controlled environment like that. Why do you think women's football is ahead of men's football in North Korea? Like, why is that? They invested in it. I think they had a they had a um, a generation of players that came to because I mean there was it's a, it's an extremely patriarchal society, which mm -hmm. is you know obviously one of the things that you know if you look at former Soviet societies and uh, Eastern Bloc countries and countries that are under communism, um, one of the things that's quite is the legacy of that is still. The, the, often women have, were far ahead in terms of on, on most metrics when it came to um, uh, you know representation in the workplace, representation in, in certain industries, um, and you you know so you'd expect that in in, in somewhere like North Korea because it's obviously communism is about you know fraternity egalitarianism and all that kind of stuff. But unfortunately, it's, it's not. It's, it's very very paternalistic society. But they had a generation of players that came through, and it, it was decided that, that that was the best vessel to try to um, promote the country internationally. So you have this, you know, it was very interesting to see one of the most uh, interesting moments. So I went on the Metro, um, which is like an old Eastern European, old Eastern German Metro train that runs through. It's an amazing, uh, it's a small network, but it has a TV on there and it showed, and there was like a, North Korean TV movie that was playing and it kind of dramatized, you know. I mean, if you had a, if you think of it in England, what kind of like really big TV movies have you got? Like Goal, I suppose, and <laughs> Escape to Victory. And this one was about the women's under 20s team winning the women's World Cup or women's under 20s World Cup. And that, that, that to them was the, you know, and there's a whole movie about it. It's quite, I mean, I only watched the three and a half minutes <laughs> until, until the next, but it's it pretty good. A lot of smoking in it. Hmm. Is it Chong, the uh, one of the coaches at the end says like the greatest success is yet to come. I wonder like like what is success for North Korean football? Well, so, uh, qualifying for the World Cup is because this is look, nothing happens without it benefiting, you know, the glorious leader or dear leader, um, you know, because that's what everything is about. It's about the perpetuation of the regime. It's about perpetuation of the, of the family, because this is a dynastic, uh, the Kim family is a dynastic, uh, totalitarian communist dictatorship, you know? So, 
so the so all of this because because you know uh, Kim Jong Un has become is very interested in sport, very interested in football. He had I went, one of the things I found I picked up. We don't you couldn't find this anywhere else outside of the country. Is this is this kind of sports plan that he has in his speech? Because there's an English language bookshop where you can buy loads of stuff, uh, loads of speeches that he's made. And so he's got he had this plan, and part of it was to you know show the world that North Korea can compete and is a powerful nation. And so that's something far outside of sport. Um, and so getting to the World Cup, and it's quite sad actually because when I met them, when I met them at the, at the Pyongyang Football School, I mean, they, there was this um, a detente almost. Like, you know, North Korean players were starting to find themselves in European football. They've, a pipeline had begun, and I've kind of explained a little bit about this pipeline that starts going to like Perugia and they start turning up in Italian teams. And there's some, there's some really good talent. I mean, look at South Korea. Um, South Korea has some very, very talented players. North Korea, the same, has some very talented players, but of course it's extremely restrictive and it's very difficult to, to get out and it's frowned upon to go and play in foreign leagues, but it started to happen. Um, but the big thing everybody was, was aiming for was Qatar 2022 because they'd, they'd got knocked out of the, of the Russian qualification for the Russian World Cup, but it was all about getting this generation of players through the Pyongyang Football School, finding the best players all around the country, bringing them there into an elite school environment, coaching them up, uh, giving them the right nutrition. This is a country member that's had several famines in recent years, giving them the right nutrition so that they can perform on the world stage and also maybe go and play in the foreign leagues. So they can get some hard currency back to avoid sanctions. So, um, and then, you know, what's happened? I mean, North Korea has become even more isolated in the age of COVID. Uh, which has ruined the economy. It's had several natural disasters since, and they've just announced that they're pulling out qualification, even though they've begun, they've pulled out of qualification for the for Qatar 2022. And, it, you know, there's no explanation. Just, I mean, as I found, there's literally a hotmail address for the North Korean FA, which they've never, ever replied. I mean, I've, I've been writing to that hotmail address for 10 years, and they've never, ever replied <laughs> to me. Um, and so they pulled out, and I, I thought of, you know, the coaches I met at that school who were just, they were so focused on, on Qatar 2022 and, you know, it's, um, it's not going to happen. So, yeah, it's quite, I mean, yeah, it's quite sad because, you know, it was important for the people that I met and people I met were football people. Mm. Um, the chapter ends with uh, Sunni, one of the players, he's one of the Lebanese players, right? Yeah, Sunni Saad, yeah. Yeah, so he, as him saying, like, he's just glad to be going home and that he's done with politics. I think that, you know, for sort of someone like Sue, because what was, I, I mean, I, I love spending time with him. I found him a really interesting character, because an interesting person, because he was, he's from Dearborn in Michigan, which is a, I think it's the, it's the only majority Muslim town in America. And, you know, he'd come through the US soccer kind of academy at Bradenton, where a lot of the, you know, young players come through and are nurtured and, you know, he said he's a really American guy, like, but, you know, he's a Muslim. He had, you know, there are certain needs when you go to you go away, you know, you, your food has to be halal and you're likely to. I mean, he wasn't particularly, he wasn't, you know, he didn't have a beard. He wasn't, um, he wasn't devout in that respect. But there were certain cultural things that as a, as a Muslim, you would have. And if you, if you were uh, Jewish or you had Haitian heritage, those things were kind of catered for and he felt that they weren't within the American system and was alienated by it and found himself then at the Lebanese national team, which was, you know, his, his heritage. And, and he was, he was, he was just a lovely guy, but also he had a fascinating story. So I think a lot of, um, one of the themes that has gone through all my work really has been talking about um, identity and in a globalized world, like who are you and does it matter who you are? And if, if it does, does it matter where you're born or where your parents come from? Because, yeah, especially with international football, this is something I touched on with 31 nil about, about the kind of the qualification for the 2014 World Cup in Brazil was this idea that, you know, dual nationalities, like people, the norm in the world now is, is going to be to have two parents from different places. And, and who are you? And I have, I've had that duality my entire life. My mum's Polish. I'm, I'm British, English, and I've always seen myself more 51% English, 49% Polish, purely because I was born there. But 
uh, and grew up there but you know my my home life is extremely polish so it's it's something that i've seen all the way through football and it's becoming you know it's a bit it's a bigger and bigger issue and he absolutely encapsulated that and you know he'd found a home in this in this in this lebanese team and um but you know he, you know he'd very much played football where he just he was just he just wanted to play football and yet he'd found himself in the middle of this insane political problem because um this was just before donald trump went out and, and met uh, kim jong-un and you know, it looked like there might be a nuclear war. US US citizens had been banned from going there because of the Otto Weimar, uh, Weimar uh, case where there's a young American kid who was uh, arrested for stealing a propaganda poster. And then when they eventually released him, he was essentially brain dead and he died a couple of days later. So um, he, although what we talked about, about identity, that is quite political, I suppose, in a way, but he was literally him and his teammates were literally dumped in the middle of you couldn't imagine a more political set of circumstances than a potential nuclear war to be honest so so i can't i, can't, I don't blame him for coming out of that and saying you know what just i just want i just want to play football no, no more of this political stuff whereas me i was just like this is this is just catnip i love this kind of stuff so <laughs> <laughs> yeah like you i've heard you say before that like you've always found supporters more interesting than players yeah, mainly. Yes. I mean, it, uh, I was probably, I probably got a bit excited when I said that because <laughs> recently, recently, yes, because um, you know, I've been writing about support culture. I've always been writing about support culture in one way or the other. And what I found is that because when, when I started out and I wrote "When Friday Comes," uh, which is about the Middle East, and then "31 um, Nil," which is about the minnows of world football, I did find the players much more interesting because. The lower down the footballing pyramid you go, the you know the more people are willing to talk to you, and the more honest they are about. They're not honest; the more open they are, um, because once you get bigger, more name recognition, you get media trained, and people are rightfully also scared of, of opening up. And we just saw um, tennis player, female tennis, uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Naomi Osaka, is okay. her name? Yeah, she. Just said like I'm not doing these interviews anymore, you know, because you know you're just asking me horrible questions and making me doubt myself. And you know, there's there's journalists have also got to take that some responsibility for that about the, the kind of feeding frenzy around the more famous the footballer gets, and not just journalists but their editors as well, who and publishers who are, who are creating that kind of system. So so I see that. And so when I was talking to someone like Jay Lee Hodgson, for instance, who was um, uh, he was playing non-league football in Nottingham, um, but had played, but had been called up because his grand was from Montserrat, and he and he played in the first World Cup qualifier against Belize, scored two goals. I think he was the top scorer for Belize of all time until very recently. Uh, sorry, for, of Montserrat until very recently. You know, and you know, I go and see him play on the first day of the season for his team, and wonderful, what a wonderful guy, like great life, um, very interesting life story. Um, but then when you move further up, you know, and you don't get that kind of access, go to Iceland, for instance, and, every, you know, because everybody's so humble down to earth in Iceland. If you if you started to act like, you know, uh, Billy Big Bollocks, then you'd be kind of cast adrift. And um, so, you, you know, so that's the, that's the different thing. But yeah, it, they can't play as can be interesting and they can be um, uh, as interesting as that. But it's just... It's, as as my kind of career progressed and you started kind of you started seeing that kind of massage world which was if it wasn't closed off to you it was heavily caveated with the restrictions that, that you needed to accept to have access and i, I really dislike that because I, I never saw myself as one of those sharks that but i, I guess i'm part of the system as well as you know but the supporters have always because i mean in a way the supporters hate journalists more than the more than the players do but i mean at least i've always had a kind of affinity and a kind of um i don't know so i mean i've always because i've never had any money i was always even when i was writing stories i'd end up standing in, you know behind the goal because that was the cheapest place to go i couldn't get a press pass so that gave me some kind of integrity i suppose in that scene so but yeah i've, I've, I've thought a little bit about that answer i gave and and, and i suppose i am i do kind of stand by that to a little extent now but when i look back at people like 
Suni and and Jay Lee Hodgson and people like that. They're, they're you know they're some of the most fascinating people I've ever met. Mm. I was first exposed to the idea that football supporters hate journalists when I watched Green Street, and <laughs> my uh, my friend Sam, his dad was like he does lighting for films and TV and that sort of thing, and so they needed a kid to be in one of the scenes. And my friend Sam has ended up in one of the scenes in Green Street. So we used to watch this scene over and over again of like in the Millwall pub and the, the kind of pans across and you can see Sam going, and we used to watch it over and over again just to see that scene. But then Brilliant. obviously there's this big bit in that where, you know, Elijah Wood goes in and he's an undercover journo and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I just, I, I just didn't know that that was a thing really. Um, and yeah, I suppose uh, the question is what, what did you make of Green Street and how oh. accurate is it to, uh, how similar is a, the life of a West Ham fan in Green Street to the life of a West Ham fan in real life? Well, this is something that I dealt with uh, or kind of came across in 1312 because one of the things interesting about ultra culture around the world is that like there, there isn't really one in England and that's, we had our indigenous fan culture, culture, uh, you know, um, casual culture, um, hooligan culture, however you want to call it, right? And which is, you know, Green Street epitomizes that for good and bad. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, I quite like it. It's quite, I, you know, it was, it's quite an interesting film because, you know, I think it was the female German director who thought it was a, um, who said it was, you know, this is, this is about what, you know, this is, this is what happens about the patriarchy. This is about what, you know, about uh, toxic masculinity or sort of words to that effect. So there was, there was some, you know, thinking behind it. Um, but everywhere that I went, every, literally, I think everywhere I went and I spoke to fans, and I remember the first time it happened was in 2005 and I met La Familia, or some guys from La Familia who are the kind of extremely far right um, ultras of uh, Beitar Jerusalem, which whose fan base is one of the most racist in the world. They refuse to have uh, Arab, uh, Palestinian Arab players play for them and, um, you know, I mean, I mean, there's a chapter about them actually in the away leg that uh, a brilliant cha chapter actually that um, Eric Rodstein uh, writes about being an orthodox Jew trying to watch Chelsea um, in America with the t not being able to like turn on the TV because that's uh, you can't do that um, if you're an orthodox Jew during the Sabbath. <laughs> it's, and then he ends up going to you know to a yeshiva in in, in Jerusalem and, and going and watch this game and it ends with him. You know, seeing this kind of horrific racism kind of play out on, in this game, um, and yeah, but going back to Green Street, like you know, the, these 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 little kind of Mizrahi uh, Jerusalemites were, you know, they hate journalists, and they heard us, but they heard us English, and they started singing. They didn't speak any English, but they started singing "I'm West Ham till I die" in in the Cockney accent because of Green Street hooligans. I think it was no, I think it must have been two thousand six, two thousand seven something like that but you know it was that showed me the power of, of this film and everywhere that I went um if it didn't matter where I went Green Street hooligans would come out especially if they found I'd, I'd often say I was a West Ham fan and it, the first thing would come up would be this film and to the point when I went to Indonesia that was the, that was the, the, that was the most interesting thing is that you know people had phrases they'd learned from that film kind of printed on their shirts you know, it's people, there are people there who'd seen, seen Green Street Hooligans 1, 2, 3, which is, which, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't know if, I don't know if even the makers have watched all three of them, you know, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think the, two, the second and third one are anything to do with the people who made the first one, don't, you know, but um, so I think I make quite a big, a big claim in the book that, that I, I, I would consider Green Street Hooligans one of the, the most culturally significant ex British film exports of the 21st century just in, in terms of the amount of people who are influenced by it. And going back to like what, what how does it reflect on the life of a, of a West Ham fan, it doesn't reflect on it at all because that world is kind of gone. I mean, you can't really behave around, like that around a game. I mean, there's in the lower leagues, I mean, some, some, you know, a lot of the older characters are still around, but it's, it's virtually gone. It's been policed out of this, uh, you know, kind of out of existence. And, but for, you know the guys that I met in Indonesia. That you know, it's a documentary. It's not. It's not. Um, they still think that world exists, and they were kind of a bit crestfallen when I told them it didn't. But um, <laughs> but you know, it was it was it was fascinating to see this film travel to the other side of the world. That's twenty 
is it 20 years old? It's going to be 20, 20 you know, 15 years old, 20 years old. Um, and it's, you know, and, and, it's, and it's to this day still has this, this massive cultural resonance with, with young men in particular who, who, you know, love casual culture and ultra culture. When you, uh, I can't remember which podcast you did. You said you did a lot of podcasts around this time last year. Uh, there was one on there where you said, like, if, if I'd been born in Bergamo, I'd have been like an Atalanta ultra and you'd have like got into um, like the fan side of things, kind of where, wherever you went. If I grew up in Bergamo, I'd be running through walls for Botcher, you know, the, <laughs> the guy who runs. I mean, he's, you know, he was, he's a, he's a general. He's a general that you'd follow into battle without a doubt. Um, and, and there's another bit where um, you've said like what went on on the pitch was was something, but you were like, I think the first time you ever went to the um, to Upton Park, like you were drawn to looking at the fans and you wanted to be in that section with all the with all those um, with all those fans. If this is an unfair question, I'm sorry. Do you think if West Ham had been better? There's a parallel universe in which you just became obsessed with the football. Like, say you grew up in Trafford and Man U were unbelievable. Yeah. Do you think you'd just be a massive Man U fan and the ultra thing wouldn't draw you to that as much? No, because I think the difference is, especially for younger people, is they don't have an experience of going to a football match and being in a crowd where they can see that kind of exciting, you know, displays and singing. Because young people have basically been priced out of football in, in England, especially. There's a massive demographic time bomb that English football is heading towards, and so. But not it, that's less pronounced when you when you go away because it's what what you what you're because I love the actual football as well. I mean, I sit down and I watch football, and anyone who goes to a game, I mean, no, you don't really. It's not a very good way to watch a game of football when you're standing behind the goals. But when you're not in a stadium, you are watching football because you love football. You love the game. Maybe you might not understand or talk about tactics in the same way. I mean, I'm not particularly a tactical person, but I love watching the game of football and watching good football, exciting football you know, sometimes absolutely fucking terrible football. So it's not about the football. It's about what the point was I was trying to make with that was that it didn't matter whether you're an AC Milan fan, right? And you'd have no complaints about, well, you would now, uh, but, oh, wait, I mean, they qualified for the Champions League, but let's say in the past five years. But, you know, if you've been a, a, a Atalanta fan or a, uh, you know, going as a young kid to watch Roma, you know, it was what was interesting to me was it was the same story. It's a type of person, and it's a type of thing that you're drawn to in the stadium, and that is that 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 danger and the excitement that you see behind the curve, that you see in the terrace behind the goal, and so that it's it's not um, instead of it's not either or. It's complementary too, but it's just that when you're in that stadium, what do you want to experience? Do you want to go like you go to the opera, or do you want to feel the heat of other people and and that's 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 what I mean by that. So if it was, you know, I'm sure, God forbid, if I was a Spurs fan and I'd grown up, you know, going to the White House, back to the library, but I suppose for <laughs> that, that's probably more hybrid than than, than uh, White Hart Lane. But like, you know, I, I'm sure I, I would have had the, I would have had the same experience, you know, because mm. I was very lucky in that I, I mean, lucky, I suppose, lucky because I mean, I know that football was in a really bad way when, at the end of the 80s and the early 90s, and a lot of these reforms were absolutely essential after what happened at Fillsborough but in my first years I got to stand on a North Bank and feel that kind of feel that kind of that heat and that danger in a way that a lot of people growing up in England kind of don't have in football and you know it's it's uh, it's something that has that I have never forgotten and one of the things I remember when I was writing 1312 was um you know, talking to Mikkel, the kind of godfather, of the, you know, the ultra scene in, in Sweden. And, you know, you can trace back this obsession to watching the 78 World Cup final and the blue ticker tape hurricane, blue and white ticker tape hurricane, and being so mesmerised by it that he he's essentially spent his entire life trying to recreate it. And I feel that if, if there was a very, um, <laughs> you know, if I was analysed by someone, that you know that game or going to a West Ham game, you know, ninety one or ninety two, one of the first games I went to, on my own, standing there and everyone, you know, that danger and that heat probably has has played some kind of role in the part I've taken. I reckon. Have you ever been to uh, the Bernabeu? Have you watched Real Madrid play at the Bernabeu? I have never been to the Bernabeu. I watched Real Madrid play in um, Valencia. Um, I did a story a few years ago for the New York Times about um, 
Saudi Arabia was sending some of its players to play in the La Liga in the hope that they could get up to speed before the 2018 World Cup, which didn't quite go to plan. Um, and so a couple of the players ended up at Villarreal. Real Madrid turned up, and it's it's amazing watching Real Madrid turn up. It's like watching it's like watching you know the aliens arrive on Independence Day. You know, people are kind of people come out gawping at this like this bus that looks like it's a, a spaceship as it goes past, and they're kind of there's loads of people who are just really like madly happy about it because they're because Real Madrid is just a club that kind of defies its city status, you know, it's, just, it's one of those clubs that sort of universally people there, you'll find Real Madrid fans everywhere, but then also, the, you know, like many people despise. So it was this weird thing where people were like, take me, and others were like, no, oh, fuck off. You know, <laughs> so it was, yeah, so I've, you know, I have seen them play in the flesh, but yeah, I've never got, I've never, I, I once went on a, I went on a, my uh, girlfriend at the time took me on a uh, uh, walking tour of the new camp but that was before I was, I was obsessed with um, Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell. So she took me mm. to Barcelona as a present, which was lovely. And she took me to, to, to walk the new camp. So, yeah, I've, I, you know, I, I've, I've been to some pretty big games, but there, there are some like pretty major gaps. Um, I, I've never been to Munich. Uh, mm. I don't think I've watched PSG in the flesh. But then I've been to the Cairo derby. Yeah, yeah. So, in front of 120,000 people. Yeah, uh, so no, the, I, think the, I think I'd rather have that, I think. Sure, sure. No, the reason I asked about Rubber Dribble was because I've been to, I went to the Bernabeu for one game and I had to look up which game it was to double check. It was uh, Real Madrid against Espanyol in 2007. I was on the Spanish exchange and my Spanish exchange trip took me. And where I was sitting in the stadium, quite high up, and obviously everyone's wearing white, like it's this sea of white, but there's this little pocket down behind the goal they're all, I'm guessing, the ultras all wear black. And so yeah. they stand out like so, like so visibly, like this just group. Oh my gosh, there's this group of people. They're obviously Real Madrid fans because they're singing and chanting and they've got flags and everything. But like that's a different type of fan. And we're wearing black and or we're wearing white, they're wearing it's, black. It's quite interesting because Ultra Sur, which is the the the, the ultras group of Real Madrid, because you know, this is like a mega global kind of brand, like it's the biggest club in like pretty much one of them you would say and yet you can still have this and they're they're quite a tough bunch i mean they're a lot of them associated with far-right politics um you know there's a lot a lot of violence attached to it um a lot of criminality on the side of it as well they there's i mean once i got told one story uh by um rafa de Zayo, who's like the leader of the uh boca juniors about us, Bravas, uh, La Dosa, and he he set up a kind of almost like an ultra school where people would come, like ultras would come and learn from La Dosa, and they'd charge thousands of you. They're very good at making money off off football, and they'd charge thousands of dollars for, for, for people to come, and they would get hard currency from them. And one, you know, ultra sur went over there to learn about the methods, and then take it back to Madrid, you know. And you could have this that, that culture kind of still uh, plugged in for good and bad into into even a global super club like Real Madrid. And it was something that I, you know, I, I was really shocked by because you didn't see any of that in England because it'd been so successfully sanitized and the fans had been so successfully turned into um, and policed into customers. But then we've just had the European Super League thing and we've had this literally, you know, overnight almost, um, you know, a switch where people, you know, when they're angry enough, they're motivated enough, then they can be these activist fans. And it's quite, it was quite interesting to see that. Mm. Could you, presumably, you saw the Super League coming, judging by your previous books? Yeah, but I think a lot, I think a lot of people saw, or the, the prospect or the threat of it. I mean, the threat of it's been going on since the 1950s. And the threat of the Super League has been there almost every year and it's been a negotiating tactic for the top clubs to try and get ever more out of the game for themselves. Um, what was surprising was that they went through with it because that tactic was getting them dividends. I mean, they were getting... They, even this last round of negotiations um, with UEFA had secured two kind of legacy places in the Champions League going forward, which would go to clubs that didn't make it but had you know, previously a good record, which was a guarantee for failure. Um, and so, you know, that that isn't the closed shop European Super League that was being proposed, 
but that was very close. You know, that's on the, you know, that's that's in the, on, on the spectrum. So um, this has been something that's been going on for for a long while, and, and it will come back again. And you know, the the main driver I think would be Gianni Infantino um, and FIFA because it's something that they they want to happen, and he's been consolidating his power. And the way to consolidate his power the most is to take you know, take on the biggest, richest uh, confederation, UEFA, and take away essentially their their biggest money-making and most powerful institution, which is the Champions League. Um, it's been interesting to see the reporting around that, especially Philippe Auclair uh, for Yossimar, who, who broke the story about the fact that Infantino knew. He knew all about it and was involved in the discussions. And that doesn't surprise me one little bit. One three one two came out just before pandemic, right? It did, yeah. It came out. It came out literally the the, the day of the shutdown, or the, I think the day the day a couple of days before the shutdown. I I wonder what you make of this observation. At the time, I feel like you might have had to explain one three one two as ACAB ACAB all cops are bastards. Whereas now, as a result of like police violence, like. Black Lives Matter as a movement, like getting bigger and bigger. I feel like that has seeped into public consciousness. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was quite. I mean, funny is the wrong word because I mean, it was quite serious stuff was going down. But uh, I mean, I actually on my Twitter I use a photo that I somebody sent me, which is of the LAPD um, department, and somebody some and there was some protests outside, and there was like somebody's written one three one two in front of the police, like on the LAPD thing. And, and so, it, and, and, you know, Pussy Riot did a song called 1312. Um, it, yeah, something, became, something which had been a, something that I'd noticed as a fringe, interesting fringe thing, which kind of encapsulated the anti-establishment and anti-society um, message almost that Ultras kind of wanted to, to project, um, you know, became part of the Black Lives Matter movement and about, police brutality and and not just in America but in, in the UK too and across Europe and suddenly you know a lot of the protests you start seeing against uh, lockdown skeptics uh, against authorities you know it's, it's also against the police so you start to understand that where this this anti-police because often when you think about kind of far-right politics authoritarian politics you start you see the police and those groups are on the same side and often it's not often the police are also just as much the enemy as the left are so yeah it was kind of weird watching it kind of in real time uh, where I was thinking oh should I, I in a way I think it might have saved my ass because I was really worried as well when it came out but I mean maybe I'd get prosecuted for this you know because I mean for there was, there was a court case in Germany they said that somebody got arrested wearing 1312 on a, on a t-shirt and the police arrested him and said it's a hate crime because you're saying all oh, police are bastards um, and, and it had to go to the highest court. And in the end, it was struck out. But it was still dodgy enough that the German publisher, there's a German language version of it, they changed the title. Um, what did they change it to? Uh, among the Ultras. Unter Ultras, so Among Ultras. And, um, and we'll probably have a different... Uh, we'll probably have different... Uh, there's going to be a Turkish version of it, so I think we'll probably have a different um, title for it here as well. Uh, mm. But, yeah, so it's, it's kind of interesting watching it in real time become a... In, into the lexicon so imagine if none of this had happened that then there might have been a few um you know angry from tunbridge wells writing strongly worded letters to my publisher and that might have, <laughs> that might have been a bit might make things a bit difficult but it, yeah it, it, it's become you know part of part of the lexicon mm. uh, a couple of quick ones to finish if you could go to any game anywhere in the world after everyone's been vaccinated coronavirus is something that happened in the past, where would you go? What's the first game you want to go to? Somewhere that I've already been or somewhere that I have Oh, either. Been. Let's do both. Somewhere you've already been and somewhere new. I mean, I've, I really, I really, really would love to go to Cairo Derby again, which isn't just about the pandemic anymore. I mean, fans haven't been allowed back into that, into, into the, into the game since Port Said, um, where, you know, 72 Al-Aki fans were killed a game and you know the regime was implicated in that and there's been a there's been a bloody coup since then and 
Egypt has fallen into a kind of very dark, dark place and fans haven't been allowed back into the grounds. And so even when the pandemic is done or as much done as it, as it will ever be, fans won't, won't be returning anytime soon. And that's really sad for me. And I've, you know, I've got a lot of good friends in Egypt, a lot of good friends who are part of the ultra movement there. And um, I'd love to, love to be able to go back there, Cairo International Stadium, 100, 110,000 people, like that, 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 that would be the dream. In terms of games I haven't seen, although I've been to watch Boca Juniors in the Copa Libertadores, I've never seen a, a Super Classico or a Super Super Classico, um, you know, in, in the Copa Libertadores final. I mean, I know obviously I did badly last time, but I'd love to see to see that. Um, and there's and there are countries that I still haven't got round to visiting. I'd really want to go to the Azteca, Mexico, and and Colombia. Um, and I was hoping maybe with Copper America this year, but that's not going to happen. So there's still a lot of places to go. And, and, and you know, eyes are turning towards Qatar 2022. And I'm thinking about all, all the years I spent in the Middle East as well. And some of the some of the just crazy football experiences I had there. And, you know, I'd love to be able to soon hopefully go back to Israel and watch watch Beta. I've got good friends out there who are Beta fans. Um, and so I like taking them to, to watch Sakhalin play, uh, which we write about in the away leg. So yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot that I still want to do. But first, because I'm in Turkey, you know, I've got to see, uh, you know, the big the big Fenerbahce Galatasaray derby again with the fans there because, um, you know, it's it's this is a football mad country. They've just had the end of the season, and the big three Besiktas. Fenerbahce and Galatasaray were all, all, all within two points of each other going into the final game of the season. And if they were, and we've had an insane lockdown for the past kind of two months. And if it wasn't for the lockdown, if it wasn't for the pandemic, this place would have been. It would just been. It would just been crazy. I, I just hope that they can do it again next season. Hmm. Uh, and if you could have one player at West Ham from any club in the world, who would you have? Ah. Uh, well, it depends positionally <laughs> okay. who we need. So, so, uh, so it's the, the squad as it's currently constructed, you can have one player to come in for the 21-22 season. I mean, I don't want to be a cliche about this, but if you stick Lionel Messi in that team, you know, we're, <laughs> we're winning the Champions League. Um, so, you know, it, that, that's just, that's just going to happen. I mean, I, you know, I, you'd have to say Kylian Mbappe, because at least you're going to get, get some years out of him as well. Um, and then the only other thing I, I would ask for is a time machine to make Angelo Bonner 10 years younger because he suddenly turned into the best centre-back in Europe so um, yeah Messi Mbappe time machine for Bonner that's what, that's what I want well let's not rule it out Anything could, anything's possible anything's possible <laughs> uh, Wicked James thanks so much you're welcome thank you